This morning, uh, we are going to start a sermon series entitled, Revelation, the Unveiling. And this morning's message is called, The Unveiling. And that's really what Revelation is. It is an unveiling. It is God unveiling what, has, what was once hidden. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, if, um, if you have at any time uh, during your uh, Christian life walked through Revelation, it is likely uh, that, it is very likely, in fact, that some of those who have uh, taught it, who have shared it, who have led it, um, kind of talk to you about charts, talk to you about dates, talk to you about current events and certain leaders in the world, may have pulled out calendars and, and tried to line up days and years and tried to come up with different codes and things like that to, to break, if you will, Revelation, as if, as if Revelation was this big code that we had to break. And uh, we're going to be taking, taking a little bit of a different spin on Revelation because I don't believe that is what God's purpose was in inspiring the writing of this letter. Uh, this is not a letter, and it is a letter as, as opposed to a book. This was not a letter that is meant or intended to be broken as if we are the, the, uh, the, the CIA or the FBI trying to break like, the, like codes or back in, in the World War II you had the wind talkers and things like that trying to break the, the codes of the enemies. That's not what this is. And so we're going to be walking through this. So as way of introduction... I want to talk just a little bit about the background of Revelation, because if we don't understand the background of it, why it was written, when it was written, and those sorts of things, you won't understand Revelation. Um, if it's just standing alone as a letter on its own and not tied to where and when it was written, then we will misunderstand it. So in order to understand literature in general to its fullest, it's important that we understand the context of writing. Okay? And I've said this before, this is nothing new. In order to understand any type of literature and what the author intends, you need to know the background. And so, for instance, when Mark Twain was writing, when he was writing, he was writing his stories like Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer and those books. He was writing those books during a certain time. There was a certain context in which he wrote. Uh, when we look at other authors, whether it be Shakespeare or other individuals in, in our literary history, they were writing during a certain time and they were speaking or approaching a particular context. So literature is meant to be written, read within a context. Was the, was the literature, was it meant to be fiction or nonfiction? Is it narrative, prose, or a letter or some other style? What's the historical context? Was it written during a time of war or a time of peace? A season of struggle or prosperity? Who is the audience and how would they understand the text? You know, what's interesting is that, for instance, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. The Hobbit was written around the time of World War II, between the times of World War I and World War II. And so there is, there's this imagery that we see in The Hobbit that is certainly that J.R.R. Tolkien was pulling from his life to help kind of understand what was writing. So context matters. And this is never more true than when we approach the biblical text. While all Scripture was, and in some sense, inspired for all humans for all time. And what I mean by that is the Bible is meant for you. It's meant for Jody. It's meant for Debbie. It's meant for Brittany and George. 
All right? The Bible is meant for you, for you to use, for you to apply. It was also written, all right? It was also written with a very specific occasion in mind. And missing that crucial point could cause us to miss out on the author's intent. Folks, when we read a text of Scripture, we want to get what the author originally intended. That matters. And it couldn't be more true than with the book of Revelation. There are so many interpretive approaches to the book of Revelation that it's mind-boggling. If you look on Amazon, just type in Revelation or the book of Revelation, you will be inundated by books on the subject. Code-breaking books, commentaries, um, the d- different types of eschatology, looking for the signs. People have made a career on writing books to open up or unveil Revelation. Several years ago, back in the 90s, there was a very popular series that came out. Many of you all have read it or listened to it, and it's called Left Behind. Now, I'm going to tell you, I am very, and I've said this before, I'm very thankful for the Left Behind series. And the reason is, is that series got a lot of people who were in the church who weren't reading their Bibles to read their Bibles. It got a lot of people outside of the church to go into the church because it was new, it was fresh, it was an interesting take on that. So I appreciate those authors in writing those texts. And I will tell you that I believe that they absolutely had the, the, uh, the best intentions for the kingdom and for the Lord at heart, okay? But I will tell you that if that is your background of Revelation, we are going to be taking a very different approach to that book, a very different interpretive approach. While there are many wonderful things about that Left Behind series um, that are exposed, and it does exalt Christ, it exalts the Lord, it, may, it emphasizes evangelism, it emphasizes the gospel, there are many other issues with it that I think complicate the book of Revelation beyond what it needs to be, uh, needs to be complicated. So we're going to walk through, and I'm not going to go through all the interpretive approaches. So if you're worried that this is going to be a systematic theology sermon series where I'm going to go through all these different contexts, I'm not. We're not doing that. I'm going to be approaching this from one very specific angle. I will tell you where there are nuances as we get to them. So uh, we'll, we'll get there, and I'll share what some other individuals believe about that, um, just because you're going to hear them, or you may have already heard them. For instance, the rapture, that's something that almost all of them, in fact, to this day, I still make a joke when I can't find Crystal in the grocery store that I've been left behind, all right? And one of these days, I'm afraid that that's going to come to fruition, okay? But it turns out she's just hiding behind a pole or something. So anyway, um, but... Huh? Okay. The Apostle John. Yeah. Forgive me for being dumb about this. There's all these different Johns written all these different ways. Is this the same? Yes. Yes. This is. Yeah, so for the podcast, for, for the podcast sake, I'm going to re- restate your question. Uh, the question is: Is this John the same John that was that wrote in the rest of uh, rest of the book? And yes, it is. It is the uh, it's the guy who wrote the Gospel of John. He's the one who we just read in the letters, uh, first, second, and third John. Yeah, it's it's not John the Baptist. It's not John the Baptist. That's a different John. Yes, yes. So this is the Apostle John who wrote the Gospels. So, and we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that.
All right. So uh, with the book of Revelation, with the book of Revelation, there are a lot of interpretive points that we're going to take, and we just need to move through those, and uh, and we're going to walk through these strategies, and it's all going to be perfectly fine. One of the issues that we have is that if we are not careful, we will read Revelation as if we're reading Harry Potter or as if we're reading the Narnia books or as if we're reading Lord of the Rings, which I love all of those, but that's not what Revelation is. Revelation is not a fantasy land. That's not what Revelation is. It is a letter from the Apostle John who wrote the Gospels, who wrote the letters, the epistles, and now God has blessed him with the opportunity of unveiling this for us. So to begin, here are some quick facts, all right, about Revelation. Just some real quick, just kind of shotgun facts at you. First of all, Revelation was written by the Apostle John around 90 A.D. Some people disagree with that. They say that it was written much earlier, around 70 A.D., around the fall of the temple, okay, in Jerusalem. But the majority of conservative scholars do believe that it was written later than that, around 90 A.D. John wrote the letter while he was exiled. So John was exiled because of his faith, and he was exiled on the island of Patmos, which you can visit today. It's an island in the southeast of Greece. People go there when they're touring Greece and stuff. It is a, it's a place where many Christians will, will go, and it's, it's sort of like a pilgrimage uh, to Patmos. And so it's a famous island. Domitian was the Roman emperor at the time of the letter's writing. And Revelation is written in the form of a narrative, letter, and apocalyptic literature. So you're going to get a little bit of, of all of that. It's primarily a letter, but you will see some narrative-type structure. You will see some. You'll see a lot of apocalyptic language, and we'll talk about what apocalyptic language is. All right, and there's even some prose in uh, in Revelation. And Revelation was written first and foremost, and this is important, as an encouragement to seven churches in Asia who were suffering persecution. That's who it was written to. It was not written to Joe Schmo. It was not written just in general. To a bunch of people, okay? Now, it's for us. Like I said, it's for us. But it was written, the original audience were seven real churches in Asia who were suffering persecution. That's who it was intended for. So as we begin this sermon series, let me start out with what I believe to be the main point of the entire letter. The main point of this letter is to encourage Christians to persevere knowing that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings of the earth, and that he's exalted and reigning on his throne. That's the main point of this. The main point of this is not the rapture. The main point of this is not the millennium. The main point of this is not figuring out when the tribulations are going to occur or if we're already in the middle of them. The main point of this is God inspiring this letter to be written to encourage Christians who were being persecuted, and that they would seek Jesus is all-fulfilling. That's the point. And so if we disagree on everything else in this letter, tribulations, time frames, all that kind of stuff, but we can agree on that point, we'll be doing pretty well. We'll be doing pretty well. So let's begin. Let's look at the prologue. It's a little odd having a prologue in a letter. We don't typically write like that, but John did in this way. So John writes in Revelation 1, 1 through 3, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, 
who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. You know, I believe, just as an aside, that if we really believed that we were blessed by reading and hearing God's word, that we would read it all the more, right? And that's exactly what John writes here. Those who read this and hear this are to be blessed by God. That is such an, right there's an encouragement. Right there's an encouragement. This letter was written to be read publicly in the church, as many of the, letter, the letters were written. All right, so when Paul wrote a letter, it wasn't just to one individual, it was to be read in front of the church. Okay, same way as here. It's sort of like when Miss Sue makes 10,000 face masks and the sheriff writes a letter thanking uh, her uh, for sending those face masks. What do we do? We read it in front of the church so everybody can be a part of that, right? It's the same sort of thing, only inspired language, okay? So one important thing that we're going to see here in Revelation is that first and foremost, like I said, it's a letter. It's a letter to seven churches that are in Asia, and we're going to find out more about that shortly. But this letter or this revelation is an unveiling, and it says here that it's an unveiling. The the unveiling of this was from God to Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? That's different than any other letter in in Scripture. Usually it's Paul writing to churches, right? This unveiling was from God to his son. That's what this this is about, okay? See, we we sometimes approach this letter as if it's like us, you know, that it was written so that we could break the code and that kind of thing. No, this was something that God was unveiling to his son, all right? What was soon to come. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants, right? We don't really see anything like this in Scripture. But it was communicated to Jesus for the sake of the servants that we might see what was soon to take place. Now, in one sense, this this is not unique to Revelation because all Scripture is breathed out. It's all inspired by God. So in some sense, God is revealing His Word to everybody. But this is a really unique way of saying it, that He's revealing it to His Son. This text carries more urgencies than others. Why is that? Because it's talking about events that are soon to take place. This isn't something that's like off in the future, you know, have you ever made like one of those, like made a scheduled trip or something like that or a scheduled activity and then like all of a sudden like it kind of pops up on you because it's so far out? Me and Crystal bought tickets to go see James Taylor, all right, that was supposed to be like this month but they moved it to August, right? So it's James Taylor and Jackson Brown and like I was like so excited and Crystal was like, yay. But anyway, so we're going to go see James Taylor. I, about, I halfway forgot that it was even coming up and then I got an email the other day. I'm like, yay, James Taylor, right? I'm hip. I'm cool. So anyway, I mean, you kind of, that's not what this letter is. This letter was written because these things are soon to take place. Soon. We'll talk more about what soon means. Now, what I believe that they mean in this, okay, we could read the word soon and we could read it and it say, and we could, it could be meaning that it's going to happen tomorrow or next week, like that soon, all right, we would be mistaken in understanding the word in that way, all right, that it's just it's going to happen next week. 
But we would also be mistaken in thinking that it's some sort of metaphor or some sort of symbol that it's going to happen thousands and thousands and thousands of years in the future. I don't think that's the way John intended for this to be read. Here's what I believe that he intended to be read. That all Christians, for all time, would keep their shoes tied. They would have their bags packed. And they would be ready. Because Christ could come at any moment. Right? It could happen at any moment. That's what I believe John means here by soon is that we don't know the exact date. Not even the Son knows the exact date. So be ready, because these things are going to happen soon. Next, this prologue is emphasizing the fact that this revelation, communicated by God to Jesus, will utilize John as a vessel for dissemination. Now here's a question. Why John? That's a good question, right? Why did God choose to reveal this by way of an angel to John? Why is John the chosen vessel? Why didn't he choose Rick or Harry, right? Why, did, why didn't he choose somebody else, okay? I believe it's because John was there. In fact, it says that. John was there. He witnessed Christ. He's called the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John. John was there. He witnessed it. And he can testify to what Christ has accomplished. Those who read the words of John will trust that they are true. And finally, we must note at the end of this prologue, these first three verses, that this letter or this revelation is meant to be read aloud, like I said, to all of God's servants. Those who read it, those who hear it, will be blessed. And I understand that to mean two things. Number one, preachers need to preach on revelation. How many preachers have avoided revelation for so long because it's either too difficult, it's too difficult to understand, or it's too difficult to preach, or it's too difficult to get everybody on the same side? Folks, I'm not worried about getting everybody on the same side. I'm not worried about whether or not we have preterists or historicists in this congregation. I'm not worried about whether or not we believe there's going to be, if there's a millennium or if it's amillennialism. I'm not worried about that, Okay. What I am concerned mostly about is that we understand that Christ is coming again. No matter what we are facing at this moment in our lives, whatever struggle, whatever pain, whatever depression, whatever we are going through, it, we are being called to persevere through that because Christ is coming on the clouds. Preachers need to preach Revelation more regularly. In fact, I believe that preachers ought to preach something in Revelation every year. There is no more encouraging letter in Scripture than Revelation. There's not. And number two, that we should be looking for blessings from Revelation, not necessarily curses. And that's what I mean by about reading Revelation with the right mindset. If we're reading it and only focusing on the, the trumpets and the bowls being poured out and all that kind of stuff, right? And the blood moons and all those. We're, we're thinking about, okay, how are all these all the locusts that are coming? You know, we had locusts this year, right? Is this, is this it? Is this it? Right? I mean, I guarantee you there's somebody looking for Jesus up in the clouds because the locusts woke up this year, all right? Focus on the blessings, not the curses. What are the wonderful, glorious things that God is doing through Christ? 
for us, and it's being revealed to us in, the, in Revelation. So that's the prologue. All right, let's go to the greetings of all greetings, okay? I love this greeting. Now, it's very common in a letter, in the biblical letter, to have a greeting. Now, we have greetings when we write a letter or an email, maybe even a text, right? And what do we say? Dear John, okay? Hopefully, none of us have ever received a Dear John letter, okay? But you, and if you don't know what that means, you have to go back and look at that. But, all right, but, but seriously, we, 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 write, we start off by saying Dear John or Dear Sally or something like that, right? That's our greeting. And we might, if we're really saucy, we'll get on that email or that letter and we'll say, I hope this email finds you well. I usually write that line when I'm getting ready to say something negative in the next few lines, right? I hope this email finds you well because what I'm getting ready to say is not going to be good. But anyway, I mean, that's kind of our greetings. John's got a much better way of greeting folks, much better way, all right? So the way this, this, this revelation or this greeting in Revelation is long, it's deep, and it's full of rich meaning. And those who would read or hear this greeting will not be distracted or anxious about anything that is to follow because of the encouraging words that are coming. So listen to this greeting in verses 4 through 5. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. That's a very typical way of starting the greeting. Paul did the same sort of thing. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, I love that greeting. And here's the, one of the main reasons why I love it. The very beginning of it. He doesn't say grace and peace to you from John. Or grace and peace to you from Paul. right? Or grace and peace to you from Chris. No, no. It is grace and peace to you from the one who is and who was and who is to come. Man, that is a greeting. And that right there, you can see that revelation is different. Revelation is different. Now, in this case, John is addressing seven churches who are struggling with persecution. And it's very, it's very likely that this persecution is not state-sponsored. So for a long time... We believed that Domitian, like his predecessor Nero, all right, was a great persecutor of the churches. Now, folks, he was not a good guy. This, this dude was not cool at all. In fact, he would put his officials to death. He, if they defied him, he would put them to death. And he actually was assassinated by his own officials by being hacked to death. They came in and they hacked him to pieces. He was not a very well-liked guy. But it is likely that the persecution is not state-sponsored, but there was no reprieve from the state either. So there was a lot of active persecution just from the community against Christians and churches, and it wasn't being stopped. So it was very, very dangerous at this time to be a Christian. And in addition, we should not consider these churches as, as metaphors. What do I mean by that? These were real churches, there is an interpretive strategy that says that these seven churches are not real churches. But in fact, they are metaphors for different periods in church history, right? And so like at one time it was Pergamum, one time it was Ephesus, and then now we're in Laodicea. It's funny how we're all, we all claim now that we're all Laodicean, right? We're all evil, <laughs> okay? But that's not what's going on here. These were real churches. 
they were contemporaries of John. Now, it's clear that John is addressing the churches, but the real greeting is from three individuals. Let's look at who the three individuals are, okay? First of all, it's God, okay? God is doing the greeting. Him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God. That's God the Father, right? The second one, the Holy Spirit. That's odd, right? We don't see the Holy Spirit written in there like that. It says, the seven spirits who are before the throne. That's not even one spirit. There's seven there. How in the world is that the Holy Spirit? We'll get to that. Finally, Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. I love that title of Jesus, that he is the ruler of kings on earth. I don't care who you support. I don't care who you vote for. I don't care who you cheer for. I don't care who you follow. They are not king. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And this is why, while I am a patriotic person, I am, I'm a patriotic person, all right? I have a flag on the back of my truck. I, I celebrate the patriotic holidays. I am thankful that I am in this nation. But I am first and foremost a child of the king. If you take away this country tomorrow, I may, know, I may not be an American, but I will still be a follower of Christ. And you can't take that away from me. So identifying the greeting from God and Jesus seems simple enough, but we're used, to, we're, you know, we're used to reading language that refers to them in that likeness. But the seven spirits is a little bit interesting, right? Now, we're not going to have time to, ident- to address this right now, but we're going to see this two other times in Revelation where it refers to the Holy Spirit as seven spirits. Now, The reason we believe, and many commentators believe that it's the Holy Spirit, is number one, is because it's contained in this this trifecta. God, Son, and then there's these seven spirits. It would be very unlikely that he would leave out the third person of of the Trinity. That's number one. Number two, numerology is a very common thing in apocalyptic language, literature. Numbers matter. We're going to see this when it starts talking about 144,000. All right? Numbers matter. And the number seven does not mean necessarily, if ever, seven anything. The number seven means, means perfect or complete or full. And so what it's referring to is he's saying, here's God the Father who is God. Here is God the Son who is God. And here is the Holy Spirit who is completely perfect and pure and full. Then John writes in chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold... He is coming on the clouds, with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. You know what John's saying there? All that's going to happen, bring it on. Bring it on. Jesus is coming. Now, often in biblical letters, like Paul's letter to the Ephesians, there is this exaltation of God in Christ. In addition, there's also this brief gospel infusion to set the stage. We see the same thing here in John. So follow with me. 
I have about three or four little headings I want us to keep on here, okay? First, John says this, glory to the one who has freed us. What does he say here? To him who loves us and has freed us. Were it not for the blood of Christ, we would still be captive in our sins. It is completely appropriate that John would open this greeting up in this way to remind us who we are and why we are free. Again, many times when we read Revelation, we miss the big picture. The big picture is not about tribulations. The big picture is not about streets of gold. The big picture is Jesus and what he has accomplished. No idol, no earthly power, no person outside of Christ can bring us the redemption that we need. For that, may he receive glory and dominion forever. So that's the first. Glory to the one who has freed us. Second, we we are a kingdom of priests. What does a church need to hear and understand when they are faced with seemingly insurmountable persecution? What is it that will cause a church that is facing persecution to keep on keeping on? What causes a church to stay the course when it is easier just to accept what the world has to offer? It's because you have been separated and made for something greater. You need to know that you're loved. What does a person need to hear? What does a child need to hear from a parent who's going through struggles? You can give them all the advice in the world, but what they really need to hear is that they're loved. We are children of the King. You need to know that you are loved. You need to hear that you're going to be taken care of. You need to understand that you are not alone. I don't care what you are going, and we are all going through something at this moment. There is not a person in this room or that's listening on this podcast that isn't dealing with something in their life. It might be minor in the grand scheme of things, or it might be something that is keeping you awake at night. It might be something that's affecting your job, affecting your relationships. There is not a single person that is not going through something right now. And you need to know that you are loved by God. You need to know that God will not leave you nor forsake you. You need to know that He is there to take care of you. It may seem like this season of life will never end. You might be, will, you might be ready to throw in the towel. And what God is saying is don't do it. Keep pressing on. Keep pushing forward. Because the reward is great in the end. You have been called out to be a kingdom of priests. You have been given the privilege of sharing the greatest message that has ever been told. Everybody thinks that Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and all those stories are the greatest stories ever told. They're not. This is because it's real. The government, the world, your enemies may all call you backwards, idiotic, and foolish, but because of Jesus, God calls you a child of God. Next, it says He's coming on the clouds. He is coming on the clouds. It's difficult for us sometimes to remember that vengeance is not ours to exact, isn't it not? Like we want to get, ven- we want to get revenge on when somebody hurts us or hurts a loved one, right? 
And these churches that are being addressed here, I guarantee you that they want to reach out and throttle somebody. That's what they want to do. And God is reminding them, listen, stay the course, love your enemy, pray without ceasing, because Christ is coming with the clouds. He is coming back. And when he comes back, whatever you think that you can do to get back at your enemy does not compare to what Christ has in store. Christ is coming back. What is a church, a Christian to do who is persecuted and maligned for the sake of Jesus? And one of the most common mistakes of people interpreting Revelation is that they suggest that the church... Now, I want you to remember this, okay? This is a common thing that you all have likely heard, okay? And I'm going to go ahead. We're going to start some controversy right here in Sermon 1. Many of us have heard that the church and Christians will be raptured before the tribulation. Okay? That's what we've heard. That the rapture will occur and then the tribulations will set in. Folks... I don't believe that is true. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. There is nowhere in Scripture that says that the church will be prevented from facing tribulation. In fact, it says the exact opposite. Because of Christ, we will face tribulation. I mean, that's why John is writing this to these seven churches. He's saying, don't be surprised. This persecution is not an accident. This persecution that you're facing is, was not unknown. It was not out of the scope of God. This was planned. It was ordained. It was, it was called for. Christ said it was going to happen. That we have to bear our crosses. The rapture, a rapture at all, before tribulation is counter to what Scripture teaches. What John here is saying is, is that you are going to face persecution. In fact, just be prepared. Whatever you're facing is going to get worse. But have hope because he's coming with the clouds. He's coming with the clouds. I believe God is promising even greater persecution in this letter. But more importantly, he is encouraging perseverance through the persecution. So how does a Christian persevere when hated, stoned, and beaten? How do you do it? How do you do it when you are the one being maligned? How do you do it when you're up in Canada trying to hold a church service and officials arrest you in the middle of the street in front of your congregation for trying to hold a church service? What do you do when you have governors and mayors saying they're going to close your doors if you don't send them your sermons so that they can monitor whether or not you are preaching hate? What do you do when government officials break into your church and set the church on fire because you're not towing the government line? What do you do when there are crosshairs on your head? You keep moving forward. Why? Because Christ is the victor. Christ wins in the end. And you are an heir of that as well. 
Jesus is coming in the clouds. No enemy of God will be able to deny the glory of Jesus. Every individual who pierced Jesus, who pierced you on his behalf, will wail at his sight. The language of these clouds is, is the language from Matthew chapter 24. It's language from Daniel chapter 7. And John is using that same language here to remind us that Jesus is coming with the clouds. Whatever you are facing now, have hope. And keep moving forward because Christ wins in the end. I have to believe, I have to believe that as a Christian, I can endure anything that this world throws at me because Jesus is for me and not against me. You can endure anything because Christ wins and because Christ wins, you win as well. You may think that you cannot get through this season you may be wanting to throw in the towel. Don't. Don't. Because of Jesus, you are more than conquerors. That's what John's telling these churches. Now, he's going to be real specific coming up. We'll start that in a couple weeks. And he's going to say, don't forsake your first love. My goodness, folks, when, the, when, when it becomes difficult and the pain is real, and the season is difficult, that is not the time to throw in the towel. That is not the time to give up on Jesus. That is the time to cling to Jesus even more. That's the time to wrap your arms around Christ and say, I cannot do this on my own. Jesus, do it for me. I am not going to say, Jesus, take the wheel, but you know what I mean. All right? Okay, I'm, and I'm serious. I'm serious here. When, it is, when you do not think you can go on, whether it's at work, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's at church, whether it's in the community, whether it's your health or your finances, when you think that there is no other recourse but just to accept what the world has to offer and just go that way, cling, that's the time to cling to Christ. That is the time to cling to Christ. We don't come to church just when things are peachy. We don't worship the Lord just when things are peachy. We worship the Lord through sorrow and in joy. So let's finish this message. The Alpha and the Omega. Can we trust these words that are being preached to us? Can we trust the encouragement that's here? And I want to cry out with an emphatic yes. Yes, we can. We can trust these words. Why is it that we can trust these words? We can trust the words because they are the words of Him who is the beginning and the end. Not only does He see the beginning and see the end, He ordains it. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Folks, as I've said before, there has never been a time when Christ was not. There has never been a time when the Holy Spirit was not. And there has never been a time when God was not. God was there before time. I don't care what an evolutionary biologist says. I don't care what a, a theoretical physicist says. They cannot get around the fact, the truth, 
that before all their theories and all their presuppositions and all those things came into existence, there was a God who understands the universe greater than they ever will. We often dream that we are masters of our universe, and that couldn't be further from the truth. We are important. We are significant. Now, that's, imp- that's important for us to know. Some people will preach it that we are just minuscule and that we don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. That's not true. We do matter. We are significant. But it's not because of anything that we've done. It's because of what Christ has done for us. It's because God has created us in His image and that He sent His Son in love to die for us and for our sins. We often think of words like the beginning and the end as a reference to time. But ultimately, they are not reference to time. They are reference to a person. Because the beginning and the end is God. Trustworthy and true. I believe that the book of Revelation has been so popular in recent years for all the wrong reasons. With all the symbolism and dramatic depictions of locusts, horses, and natural disasters, it seems like it would be a made-for-Hollywood story, doesn't it? Hollywood tried it, and they failed like three or four times. Serious, folks, don't put Nicolas Cage in a movie where people are going to disappear from a plane. Great national treasure, really bad in that, okay? But that's another story. We love to read and watch stories unfold that are filled with adventure, weird creatures, and supernatural events. My family went to Disney World a couple years ago. We went, to, we went to Universal Studios, and we went to Harry Potter World. And I'm going to tell you right now, I was upset. Because all the children got a wand, and I didn't. I love that stuff, folks. I might have a graduate studies gown that I graduated in. And I pretend to be Dumbledore two or three times a year when I have to put it on. I might do that. Sorry, Crystal. It's no wonder that it's no wonder that Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings is so popular. It's so popular. Why is it? Why is it so popular? Because it allows us to escape from our world. That's what they do. I, when, when I'm watching those movies or reading those books, books, I can escape and I can imagine that I'm right there with Frodo and Samwise taking the ring to Mount Doom. Or I'm right there with those three or four brats that are in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I can't remember their names. You know, or you know, I'm, I'm right there with Harry and, and Gargamel. That's Smurfs. You get the idea, okay? I'm with those folks. And I'm doing it, and I'm fighting Lord Voldemort, and I'm doing all this kind of stuff. You can escape your life and jump into this world and imagine you're still there. Why are superhero movies so popular? Because you can, I mean, I love, I'm, I'm going to pick on Jackson here, and I love this. I love this. And you, We will turn on a superhero movie, and he will be still for five minutes. But for the next hour and 45 minutes, what's he doing? He is pretending that he is Superman or Spider-Man, and we're trying to watch the movie, and all I hear is, you know, all these sound effects. Why? Because he has engrossed himself in the story. Don't worry, Jackson, I still do it when I'm by myself. It's, I mean, it's, it's just, that's what we do. But here's the problem. When we try to do that with Revelation, 
we have to remember that we're not reading Revelation to escape our real life into something that's fantasy. Revelation is real. It's what soon will come to pass. And the story is, cannot compare. There's no story that Hollywood or any author can write, as much as I love those things, that can compare to what God has planned for you. There's nothing. I heard a sermon from John Piper recently where he made the claim that we are at war. This was from 1995. He made the claim that we're at war and that the war that we are in is worse than World War II and it is more devastating than any war we will ever face in the future. And it's because soldiers that go into that battle are not risking life and limb. We are at war for the very soul's of men. But too few people do not believe that we are at war. They believe that we're at peace. That we can go to the movies and eat popcorn. We can ride our bikes. We can go on hikes. We can do all these things. We can build houses. All right? All good things. All good things. We can do these things. And it's like we're at peace because nobody's shooting at us. And then we're lulled to sleep because we fail to see that we are at war. We are in the middle of a spiritual battle, and that is something that is so evident in Revelation. If you believe that everything in Revelation is in the future, then it's easy to get lulled to sleep believing that we're not at war. But what I'm going to try to encourage you to see is that Revelation is not an unveiling of what is a future for us. Some of it has already occurred. And we are in the middle of it some right now. And I'm going to try to show you that over the next several weeks. Folks, we are at war. Revelation screams that the entire Bible, what the entire Bible is trying to communicate to us, that we are at war, and while the final victor of this war has already been ordained, the war still must be fought. You may say, well, Jesus wins in the end. Why are we worried about it? Well, the battle still has to be fought. We still have to fight this war. And what are the tools of war? It's not a gun. It's not a sword. It's not a tank. It's not an F-15 or a nuke. Our weapons are the Word of God and prayer. And if we are not wielding those daily and effectively, Christ will not lose the war. But we can lose the battle. We are going to be harmed along the way. We will be beaten, maligned, and some will perish. There are going to be some Christians that you know that will not make it out of this. And I can say that because already across the world there are moms who wake up the day after their husbands were executed for their faith, that their children were taken away because of the family's faith. That a woman was raped by multiple individuals and cast to the side just because she loves Jesus. That's not a future thing. That's happening now. 
Now, you might be saying that I'm being a little heavy-handed, but I believe what Revelation teaches us. So let me close with this word. Revelation 22, verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Trustworthy and true. So I ask you this morning, are you ready? Are you ready?